and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Try Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. I would like to welcome you to Sarah Hales from All Things Small Beers podcast. This podcast made it to the top 10 for business and entrepreneurship on Apple podcast in just eight weeks. Sarah is a mum, a career girl, and an incredible entrepreneur who made it to the top in a very male-dominated industry. While she is a qualified engineer, she was also a business manager for a multi-million dollar business for over 15 years. She's worked internationally. She was asked to go to other mines to provide expert help and bring projects back on track. She's managed joint ventures in relationships in Japan, South Korea, India, Brazil, and she's negotiated nine-figure business deals. However, she's now playing in the space of running her own businesses. West of the Waves, All Things Small Biz, e-commerce with Sarah Hales. And now she's using all of that experience to coach clients on how to grow their businesses. This episode contains a discussion around medical testing, the waiting game, and the inner critic. So if you don't think this is for you today, skip this episode and we will see you next week. Welcome, Sarah, to the podcast challenges that change us. Thank you so much for having me, Al. Oh, I can't wait to get into it today. <laughs> I, um, I've been thinking a lot about this podcast over the last week. So I really like to start my podcast with a couple of quirky questions. So for you today, I want you to have a think about if you were to describe your personality as an animal, what animal would you use and why? Oh, gosh, that is a good question. Probably the first thing that pops into my mind is a horse. Mm, tell us more. Oh, I don't know why. I've spent a lot of time with horses in my lifetime. I think that they can tend to be a little bit shy. They will only come out of their shell and start to, you know, love you and when they start to feel really comfortable, they're strong, they're very loyal once you've built that connection with them. And I think that those are probably the things that resonate with my personality. Sometimes I can seem like I'm a little extroverted, but realistically, um, I'm quite introverted and I only, you know, really come out of my shell when I know someone very well and the people that I do know and love there will be no one who's more loyal than I am. Yeah, that's interesting. I would not have used the word shy to describe you. Do a lot do you find that with a lot of people when they meet you they wouldn't pick you up as No, quiet definitely or shy? not. They wouldn't no. No. And what would your husband describe you as if he was gonna pick an animal? Oh I have no idea. I think sometimes he thinks that I can be quite bossy and uh, <laughs> so I'm going with dog because because I'm thinking of my farming background, I can be quite, you know, yappy and tell him what to do and quite, you know, bossy and regimented about how things need to be. So, I'm thinking like sheepdog, you know. That's what I, sheepdog, <laughs> yeah. Because the words I wrote down was inquisitive, determined, focused 
and occasionally could attack because I feel like when you get your eyes on something, you go at it, girl. You know, yeah. like you are so focused and driven towards that. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Mm. And my other second question is, what was your favorite room in your house when you were growing up? And what was it about that room? Oh, goodness me. My favorite room. I liked really small spaces when I was little. Like for interior, I had a real thing with, uh, you know, caravans and not necessarily caravans, but I really liked small confined spaces. But then on the complete flip side of that, I would have much preferred to have been outside. So, I, did, I don't think I had a specific room, probably the bathroom, if anything, because it was probably the smallest room in the house. What about the linen cupboard? Did you have a linen cupboard? No, not really. We we honestly, we didn't, we weren't the kids, the sort of kids that played in our bedroom. Mum wasn't really into that. Bedrooms were for sort of sleeping and reading and resting, um, like a, you know, a relaxation type space. Can I just pause you there, Sarah? That's a really interesting comment because it's one of the things that we talk to in psych is having your bedroom set up for the use of it. So, yep. a lot of people spend a lot of time in their bedrooms doing lots of other things, play, watching movies whatever it is um it's interesting is that what you where your mum was coming from in that your bedroom's there for sleep for rest for a calming space so therefore we don't want to like make it busy and noisy and yeah no i'm not re- i'm not really sure and um i mean i would have to ask her that because i never i've never asked her but i think she liked to keep those spaces you know neat and tidy and yeah i think that she probably did want to keep those as you know your calm resting place um, just for sleeping and having some downtime. So we didn't play in our bedrooms, but we were so outdoor orientated. We had our bikes, we had our ponies, we had fruit trees. You know, if we were hungry, we would go and grab a mandarin off the tree or have a drink of water out of the tap. So we probably didn't spend that much time inside at all when we were little. And how many kids in your family? How many? There's four of us and I'm the oldest and we are sort of around the 22 months apart in age. So, there's four kids Mm. under the age of four because my brother and sister are actually twins. So, um, yeah, mum had four babies under four. Oh, my God. For (laughs) any mum out there listening right now that has four babies under four, you're going to be okay. It gets easier. You're going to be okay. (laughs) Yep. They will hopefully be great buddies when they get older, but that is some tough, tough years ahead, isn't it? If oh, absolutely. Four babies under four. And so my brother and sister are twins um, and mum had, you know, single baby, single baby, and then the double, whereas my auntie, so my cousins are twins as well, and she had her twins first and then a single. And when you hear mm. them talk about their experience, mum is sort of like, you know, oh my God. And then I had two babies. Whereas my auntie is like, oh, and then I had this single baby and it was like a dream. So (laughs) the placement of the twins. The difference. And that would change throughout the years, I imagine, like, um, you know, depending on what stage of life they're in as to how easy or hard it is and where they're placed in the family. For sure. Mm. And so, if we were to pull back the curtain, let's have a bit of a look behind the scenes. You have doing some amazing stuff this year. You own your own small business, West of the Waves. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how you got into business? Oh, look, I um, so I'm an engineer. 
Uh, I've worked away uh, in the coal fields, in the mines for years and years. And I had always had this dream in the back of my mind that I wanted to start my own business. I wanted to get into a position where I could work for myself. And I did start a business and I was contracting to the mines, but I still felt, you know, this desire to create my own business. And I think that I was tell you know making a few little excuses telling myself that I was too busy that I didn't have the skills and that went on for honestly probably about 5 years um and it wasn't until I had our first baby Jack and he was about 6 months old and uh my husband hates it when I say that I was bored I wasn't bored with my baby. I loved my baby, but I'd been used to having such a high-powered job, using my brain, organizing things, you know, achieving goals, and I didn't have that. So like the I wasn't using my mental energy. Anyway, didn't I have was, the stimulus. Yeah, I didn't have that stimulus to, you know, I liken it to exercise. So if somebody needs to, you know, burn off a little bit of energy, they go outside and go for a run. I had this mental energy that wasn't being used and I wasn't burning Mm. it off. Um, Because you don't even end up having adult conversations for a while there. You know, when you've got a newborn baby, it's everything's about changing the nappy. When's the next feed? How do I get some sleep? How am I even going to get to the shower? What do I do with my baby? Like it really is just back to the basics. Yeah. And I was extremely, extremely fortunate with Jack because, I mean, he was – just the perfect little baby. He ate when he was supposed to, he slept when he was supposed to, you know, all of those things. And I had had, you know, the dream birth. I had Jack in two and a half hours. So, he was just doing exactly what he should. And I had the bed made and I had, you know, I was going for walks in the afternoon. So, I was really, really fortunate in that space. But I think that that even added to the fact that I was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And I was having a few thoughts along the lines of, you know, I've studied so hard. I don't, you know, I don't want to go back to what I was doing before. It's not that I don't want to go back to the engineering. I still do that work now, but putting myself back in that time, I didn't want to go back to living in a mining camp. I couldn't imagine being away from my child. I didn't want to work like I had been working before. And it was my brother actually who said to me, look, I'm sick of hearing about all the stuff that you can't do. I only want to hear about what you can do. And actually, um, you've always talked about starting your own e-commerce business. Why don't you just do it? And I, you know, he he said, I challenge you. I challenge you. And knowing my personality, that was probably the best thing that he could have said. And within 24 hours, I had a website up and operational. I didn't have a name. I didn't have a product. But, you know, within 24 to 48 hours, I was already feeling better because I had a project. So, I love that your brother pulled you up to say, you know, what are you doing? It's it's sort of like there will always be an excuse. You know, yes. we can always find an excuse not to do something. And sometimes we just need that little bit of motivation or someone to hold a mirror up in front of us and be like, here you are. Now is the time. What's your very first step? Because going from zero to one can be the hardest. Absolutely. You know, taking that very, very first action step is often where people don't get get momentum. Yeah, that's so true. When you said that you created a website in 24 hours, that just sounds off the cuff, you know, and I just created a website. It can take months to create a website. So, talk to us about that. Do you mean you like, did you know anything about websites? No. How did you create it? (laughs) Well, I had a lot of help from Google. I had in the past, you know, when I was saying that I had five years where I'd been 
you know, thinking about starting a business. I had in the past gone to some web building, you know, applications on online and had a bit of a go, but I'd never got much further than, you know, typing in my name and a fake sort of business, a made up business name and having a little bit of a play around. So I had absolutely no skills at all. I don't even know how I chose. I use Shopify as my hosting Mm. um, platform. So I don't even know how I chose that because there's obviously Wix and Squarespace and all those different ones. I don't know how I came up with Shopify. But yeah, there was a lot of Googling involved. But the one thing that I did do, and I also don't know how I came to find this, but I don't know if you've heard of a lady called Mel Robbins. Do you know what? That is ironic that you say her name. Her name has come up three times this week. I'd never heard of her last Wednesday. Yeah. And that's the third time I've heard of it in se- her in seven days. Wow. I found this uh, YouTube clip and I think there's like a three-minute version, a 10-minute version, a 20-minute version. Anyway, I watched the 20-minute version and in this YouTube clip, she talks about, you know, what had happened to her and her husband and I think that, you know, lost – a lot of money or been made redundant, you know, those sorts of things. And she was struggling to get out of bed in the morning. Anyway, she talks about her method, which is like a 54321. And the idea behind that is that your brain is set up in a way to keep you safe. So if you start thinking, okay, I want to start a website, but I don't really know how, immediately your brain starts feeding you the, um, you're going to look silly. You don't know what you're doing. Um, this will mm-hmm. fail. And that's, that's just your inbuilt mechanism to stop you from doing the thing that's giving you the anxiety. Like I'm getting anxiety because I don't know how to start a website. Okay. Well, we've got to keep her safe because there's something scary. Whereas if you do the method of five, four, three, two, one, take action. I would literally, Mm. after I watched that video, sit there and think, okay, five, four, three, two, one, type something into Google and just take Mm. the tiniest little step. And I've continued to use that method ever since then. But that's really how I did it. I thought, okay, I need to start a website. I'm going to Google it. That's a fabulous little tip. That's like with the breathing, just taking five, like five things you can, you know, if you're doing a bit of mindfulness, five things I can see, five things I can, it's coming into the present and counting down five, four, three, two, one is switching that thinking. You know, it's taking away from that inner critic coming up saying you can't do it and being like, right, think about the numbers. Now let's go straight into action. Yeah. So that might be a really good strategy that people can take away from this podcast to try and implement today. Absolutely. And I'm mm. I'm probably doing it, um, it, you know, in justice by describing her. So, I would recommend going and even just watching that three-minute video because the way that she describes it is just, it's so effective and it's something that I still use today. Yeah. And your business now, West of the Waves, tell us about that. So, I started out, like I said before, I didn't even have a name. I didn't have a product. So, once I'd built the website and you know, then that triggered within me that I was like, okay, you know, this thing's fully set up. People go could go there and buy something. So, why don't I try and make a goal of it? I better get some products. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I better find something to sell. I better find something. <laughs> so, I think I found the product next and then I came up with the name. But originally, I started with some beautiful bangles. So, I do um, gold, silver, rose gold bangles, you know, embellished with pearls, you know, very ocean inspired. And 
like everything with West of the Waves, it's just, you know, morphed and grown and changed. I had these beautiful bangles, which were things that I like to wear. And then I thought I was looking for a dress to wear for Christmas and I couldn't find something that was in, in line with what I wanted. So I thought, oh, well, I'll just make one. Let's make one. So <laughs> then I started manufacturing and, you know, designing and manufacturing. And it wasn't too you long. You make it sound so easy. Yeah. And then I just decided I was going to design and manufacture clothes. Yeah. For everyone listening, it is not that simple, um, <laughs> even though you make it sound simple, Sarah. No, it was it was not simple, but that's how simple the decision was in my mind. All right, <laughs> we'll, we'll do this. And then it wasn't too long after that. It was probably in the December of 2019 and the first whispers of COVID or coronavirus were coming around and I had had my first garment manufactured offshore um, mm. in China and I was laying in bed and I said to my husband, you know, it's not like we're receiving these goods into a bricks and mortar store. They're coming to our house. I store them in my office outside of our children's bedrooms um, and I made the decision right then and there to go Australian made. So now I have my ocean inspired jewelry and we do a hundred percent Australian made linen pieces for the sort of, you know, classic stylish lady. Uh, I don't do fast fashioned. I do slow fashion. What do you mean by that? Really nice investment pieces that you can have in your wardrobe for years and years. The staples. Not the, yeah, the staples. Not the things that you could dress up with accessories or, you know, a scarf or a new handbag or a different set of shoes, but something that you can have in your wardrobe for a really, really long time. Not the thing that's going to be on the front cover of Vogue, but the beautiful mm. white linen shirt that someone was wearing in 1980, but they're still wearing in 2020. Halfway between the ocean and the country. That's right. That's where right. the two meet. If you want to check out Sarah's website, jump on our link in the show notes below. All right, Sarah. And so you also have just started podcasting. Yay. I Tell have. us about your podcast in three minutes. I'm going to challenge you here. Oh. What is your podcast about? My podcast was started because my social media was hacked and I wanted a way to advertise West of the Waves. Uh, but in my true style, I wanted to lift other people up with me. So I set it up in a space where we talk about small business and we give out the tips and the tricks that um, people don't necessarily want to tell you whilst promoting my business and also other small businesses. And the real value comes from the crossover um, of listeners. Mm a place where I can mm. find new clients, but also my guests can find new clients as well whilst helping and empowering other people to start their own small business. Did just everyone wins in that scenario, you know, and the tips and tricks are amazing. I remember listening to your first podcast. Um, I'm not sure if it's the first one you did, but the first one I listened to was about that social media being hacked yeah. and what you need to do around that. And it was really helpful. Like I went straight into my social media, made sure I had everything, you know, the double authentication, which I didn't have in Facebook, but I had in Instagram. So, you know, if you are someone that's out there and you are building a business, some of the tips and the hacks that Sarah has on that podcast are just the mistakes that so many of us made along the way and we can just shortcut that, you know, listen yeah. to the podcast and be like, right, I don't now need to make that mistake myself and learn from that. I can learn from other people 
other people's mistakes. Yeah, exactly. Let's dive a little bit deeper, Sarah, into your story. Um, for those that are listening, Sarah has um, with her right eye, it's starting to droop and it's something that I know Sarah says she is aware of every single day. And if you meet Sarah often, you won't even notice it, but um, that's often because she has a head turned to one side. Sarah, are you able to take us back to the beginning around this challenge for you? Where did it all begin? Yes, I can. I... I had a pterygium, which is a growth that you get on your eye. It's not uncommon. It's it's not uncommon, particularly for Australians, particularly for Queenslanders. It's caused mainly by the sun, but also by spending a lot of time out in the elements. Uh, and you know, that's my whole my whole life. I spent outside uh, in the sun, or down the cattle yards, or down a coal mine. And I went in for routine surgery to have that removed. Uh, and after the surgery, I needed to go back to the surgeon, you know, the next day and then within seven days and then a month and three months. But within that very first week, I knew that something wasn't quite right because my right eyelid was just ever so slightly drooped. In that you could tell when you were looking in the mirror or you could feel it? I could feel it. I could tell when I was looking in the mirror but also, I mean, the pterygium uh, that they removed was quite quite big and quite angry. You know, if I'd spent a lot of time out in the sun, it's almost like because it's a it's raised, a raised growth on your eye, it would get quite red and, you know, dust would stick onto it first and it would get really irritated. So, they had removed that and put a graft over it as well, which was stitched. So, when I would blink, um, it was, you know, not not painful, but very scratchy. So, in those first few weeks when the stitches were dissolving, my eye was still swollen. So, so to an onlooker, they would have thought that my eye was still recovering from that surgery. Mm. But to me, I could see it, but I could also feel it. Feel it. Yeah. So, what did you do with that information? I went back to my surgeon and I told him that I thought that something was wrong and he proceeded to tell me that I was being a little bit vain and that I needed to give it time to heal. <laughs> wow. I mean, look, knowing your story now, that's pretty big, right? Massive. Like, yeah. huge. Yeah. So, what happened next? Well, you've got to imagine that, you know, this this happened about 11 years ago and it happened so, so gradually. So, to an onlooker, they maybe couldn't see what I was feeling, but I knew that there was something wrong and my mother knew that there was something wrong. But the deterioration has happened so gradually over 10 years that in those first few weeks, it wasn't very obvious. Eventually, I, I talked to my mom about the fact that, you know, I knew that there was something wrong and that that particular surgeon wasn't doing anything very helpful. And we have a family friend who's a doctor and he actually works in, you know, like an occupational type space doing medicals um, for people nowadays. So, not really the most likely of doctors to give you a, refer a referral, but being a family friend, he gave me a referral to the top eye specialist in Queensland and we mm. had to wait about five months to get that appointment and we travelled to Brisbane um, to go and see him and we were sitting there 
you know, in the consultation and, you know, he had a look at this and had a look at that and said that he couldn't see anything specifically wrong with the sight, I guess, like the scarring and that sort of thing in my eye. So, therefore, couldn't say what might have happened in the operation. And he said, you know, if you'll just wait here, um, I'd like you to see one of my colleagues. I'm just going to go out and, you know, see when we might be able to get you an appointment with him. And when he left the room, I was saying to mum, oh, God, you know, here we go. We had to wait five months for this guy. I wonder how long we're going to have to wait to see the other bloke. The and next guy. We'll have to travel to see him and whatever. And, the you know, the first doctor came back in and he said, he's going to see you in 20 minutes. So that What? Yeah, that was my first... That was my first alarm where I was like, oh, right, yeah. something serious going on here. And then uh, so we went back to the waiting room and we went, you know, we eventually then got in to see this other man and uh, he did, a, you know, a bit of this and a bit of that. And then he said, okay, well, I'd like to get you in for an MRI. How long are you in Brisbane for? And we were only there for the long weekend. It was my mother and father's wedding anniversary. It was their 30th wedding anniversary. And one of my sisters was in Brisbane at university. So we'd organized to take mum and dad out for this nice dinner for their wedding anniversary. So he said, okay, we'll just leave it with me for a few minutes. So we went to speak to his secretary and then he came back in and he said, I've got you an appointment at the Brisbane Martyr tonight at 11.45 p.m. Whoa. And alarm bells again. Alarm bells that were just, you know, by this stage I was feeling, probably feeling a bit sick if I'm honest. And I just, I said to him and I didn't mean, I, I don't think I sounded um, abrupt or anything, but I just said to him, look, I'm a pretty intelligent person and you cannot get me an appointment at the Brisbane Marta same day, like especially middle of the night unless mm. there's something pretty wrong. Could you please at least just tell me what it is that you're looking for? And he said, um, I wouldn't tell you if you didn't ask because I don't want to worry you, but we're looking for uh, multiple sclerosis. And secondly, we're also seeing if there might be a brain tumour, which would which would be a better diagnosis because at least we could do something about that. Mm. So, yeah. That's a lot like that's a lot to take in in a moment, isn't it? When someone yeah. sort of – when you're sitting in a medical appointment, you're thinking you're going down just to have something checked and, and then all of a sudden they're saying that there could be something wrong that could impact your quality or quantity of life. Absolutely. And, you know, I, at that point I didn't even know, you know, I've heard about MS but I had no concept of what, um, that might mean I knew that it would be, you know, it would affect walking and that I could potentially end up in a wheelchair and those sorts of things. And for somebody like me who's been so um, active. active and sport orientated and riding horses and at that time in my life I was, uh, you know, competing in camp drafts, you know, 10 weekends a year and riding horses and working outside. It was, you know, it was a lot. It all lot. flashes before you, doesn't it, when someone says something like that. It's like yeah. you go to worst-case scenario and it's hard to not think that something like that, like when you go and have the test, when they say that to you and you're about to go and have a test, the anxiety and the 
overwhelming fear that happens between a doctor's statement and the testing is sometimes what people talk about the worst, you know, that waiting game. Yeah. Waiting to see what the test is going to show. Well, he was very good about that too, because, you know, like I said, it was a long weekend and um, he came to the Eye Institute on the Saturday, you know. So not only was it that he got me an appointment on a Friday night at 11 p.m., 11.45, I don't know how after 11 years I can still remember the time, but um, mm. it was a Friday. It was a Friday of a long weekend and he came, he made me an appointment and the entire Eye Institute was closed on the Saturday. It was just him and I and my mum and he came in to make sure that I got those results the next day so that I didn't have to worry well, that's about gonna it. That's going to make me cry. <laughs> isn't that just one of the, like that's oh, that's beyond and above, isn't it, oh, when someone just yeah. takes it takes a moment out of their time to sit and be with you in a, in a time of challenge. Yeah, yeah. And what were the results there? What happened? I had no, uh, oh, well, I, I don't even know what the word is, no signs of MS because they they mm. look for like no a, a sparking on, on your brain, which yeah. is like a disconnect of the, mm. I don't know, whatever. And I had no, uh, no tumours, no lesions, no clots, no nothing. So um, whilst that was obviously good news, it was also incredibly challenging because what then, you know, what is it? What did happen then? Well, he recommended me to go and see an MS specialist, even though I didn't have MS, he wanted my brain scans checked. Mm. So I, I went to see this lady and I ended up seeing this lady every six months for five years, even though I do not have MS. Why was that? Why did they why did they have you coming in every 6 months? Well, in the beginning, so apparently, again, I'm not a doctor, so I I don't know, I just paraphrase, you know, I've seen a number of these people over the years, but a lady in her 30s or early, you know, I wasn't quite 30 then, I was about 27, 28, presenting with an eye issue can be very very early onset of mm. it. So oh, I think they wanted to keep abreast of it and keep checking to make sure that it wasn't developing in me. Mm. And then yeah, I had some repeat repeat scans over those years. Um but yeah, nothing nothing ever showed up. With that, you know, when you say nothing showed up, for anyone going through this, going through testing over and over whether it be for MS or brain tumours or cancer, these big tests that can fundamentally change your life is exhausting. Totally. Like not having answers is exhausting and frustrating and can be overwhelming. Was that your experience there? Yeah, absolutely. I actually got to a point where I just stopped. They, you know, I... I'd had test after test after test after test and nothing – I still to this day I don't have a diagnosis. Oh but I, I got to a point where I thought I can't keep doing this because, you know, it's just consuming my life and you go to 
you know, you go to have the test and then you've got to wait for the results and then there is no result and then you've got to move on to the next test and wait for the test. Wait for the test wait and then the wait results, for the result and no then results. no result. It's like a merry-go-round that doesn't stop. I also had it in my mind that if I keep searching for something, then I'm going to find something. And realistically, I've had all of these tests and they've not found anything. I'm completely healthy at this point and I'm just driving myself insane. So I actually mm. reached a point where I just decided that I was going to try and be okay with it. How did you manage that anxiety through that time? Oh, sometimes terribly. (laughs) (laughs) Don't we all? Don't we all? Did you have strategies for that though? What got you through those times? Well, I don't know if any of my strategies were actually healthy. Let's talk about that. When you say your strategies weren't healthy, what you mean like you went out and got blind or, you know, just worked yourself into the ground? Like I think that's a really honest honest conversation to have here. Like when you're going through this sort of stuff, sometimes you I don't know, I don't know if you were self-destructive or just Yeah, I think like I was what happened for you. I think it was all of those things, you know, like I worked myself into the ground. I mean, during those mm. times, I completed a degree and a master's degree in less time than most people can complete a bachelor's degree whilst working mm. remotely full time on a coal mine. So, if that gives you any indication as to what I was doing, I was working. Mm. I probably drank way too much. I probably drank way too much wine, not to the point of obliteration, obliteration, not at all, but, you know. More than what you would have liked to if you look back at that time. It was one of the things you turned to. Yeah, one of the things I turned to. I had boyfriends that were probably terribly unsuited um, to me. I cut off some friends and whilst – You know, on the flip side of saying that some of the things that I did were unhealthy, I also think that some, I got some kind of strength from somewhere where if something wasn't serving me, it's got to go. If it's not Mm. in line with me, I feel like before that, and I don't want to sound like I'm intolerant, but before that, I was really tolerant to people's behaviours if, you know, maybe if you're in a friendship with someone but you're the person who's always making the phone call to them and they're never, ever calling to check on you. That's Mm. what I mean is if I was the one who was having to make 70% of the effort and somebody else was only making 30% of the effort, well, I just stopped making an effort because – I was going through a really traumatic time in my life and if people weren't prepared to put in 50%, then it wasn't, it was, you weren't able to do I it. I wasn't able to do it. Yeah. yeah. And what would you say through that time was the hardest part for you? Not knowing, like wondering what if. What were the what ifs? Like what did they look like? What if they've missed something? What if this is actually a mess? What if I do actually have a brain tumor? What if this gets worse? Then there was, you know, relationship things because at that point I wasn't married and I, you know, was just working. Um, what if somebody doesn't like how I look or that – Will anyone love Will me anybody like love me? Um, I put a huge amount of pressure on myself. Mm. Yeah. What's it like thinking about it now? Oh, I've just about cried twice already <laughs> while we've been talking. Mm. I'm still not okay with it. I'm a lot more okay than I was, but every day 
there's something that I have to work through. Hey, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you are and you'd like to learn more or engage further with our podcast community, you can do this in our Facebook group. Just search for Challenges That Change Us on Facebook or look in the link in our show notes. In this group, we'll be sharing extra content and giving further background to our episodes. So I hope to see you there. But for now, let's get back to the episode. Tell us about now, Sarah. Tell us about what it's like for you now. Well, the people that I choose to spend my time with, my family, my friends, my loved ones, they don't really notice anymore. And when I'm with them, I think about it less. Mm. I don't probably like to go places where I don't know a lot of people. I probably prefer to go places during the daytime where I can wear my sunglasses. Uh, You know, promoting my business, say, for example, can be sometimes can be quite difficult because I don't really know what happens, you know, when you're like doing an Instagram live or a video or something along those lines, but it's almost like it flips your face. And what I see in the mirror is not necessarily always what I see on my phone and it can be quite confronting. So sometimes I will do the video and then I will do the video and then I'll do it again and then I'll just delete it and won't do it. So that can be pretty challenging. What drives that, Sarah? What drives that, that people are going to judge you for your eye? Yeah. Or that, Um, what is it that makes you press record again and again? I don't like how it looks. I worry that, Mm -hmm. I don't know, I've been working through two of these things just recently. One is that I'm trying to have a mindset shift about it where if I think, you know, I guess when you're marketing your business, you're trying to attract a client, right? You're trying to attract a client Mm -hmm. to your business. So, if I'm looking at myself in the mirror and what I see is unattractive, then it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy because if I market my business and the client is not attracted. Um, It's almost like it's because of the unattractiveness. I don't know if I'm doing that justice by saying it, but I worry that people will think that it's unattractive. I'm hearing it sounds like three things. One is I'm unlovable. That's the first one. It's not like people are not going to be drawn to me. Yeah, I don't feel attractive and I don't think they'll like me. Mm. Is that, does that, sit there or is that that doesn't feel like that's no that's that that hits the mark Mm. which is you know when I'm listening to this it just sounds so and this is like we would never say that to a closest friend or to our child we would never in our wildest dreams tell someone that what we tell ourselves in those moments that we're vulnerable is heartbreaking and cruel and it's there to serve a purpose it's there to protect us but it doesn't always do a great job and listening to you as an outsider that has seen your instagrams it's inspiring like i just look at it and think my god you are so remarkable Mm. incredible and inspirational and hearing you talk about what it's like on the other side of the camera to what we see blows my mind Mm, thank you Yeah, it's tough. And, you know, I know that I've got children, I've got friends, I've got family. And I feel like because of this, well, that, you know, two, two things there is that I've never been that person. I don't care what somebody looks like. I don't care what they're wearing. I don't care what they do for a job, how much money they've got, don't have, where they live. 
I like somebody because they're they're kind or they're intelligent or they're caring, like, you know, physical things or, you know, how you look, they make no difference to me at all. If you're nice and kind, then you're okay with me. And I also feel like I was very encouraging and supportive before this, but now even more so. Like if you want to start a small business or if you've got an idea or if you want to do something that everyone else thinks is crazy, come to me because I will support you. I will, <laughs> I've got your yeah, back. I'll, I'm going to be your cheerleader be your every cheerleader. single step of the way. And I think, you know, if I look at my journey, I can break it down into three, four stages probably, pre-injury. The first part, which was very medical, the second part, which was very turn my back on the whole thing and just try and live life and not worry about it. Mm. And then the phase that I'm in now, which is that I'm a mother and I can recognize certain things that I don't want my children to see, be, do. You know, like I worry about going and picking the kids up from daycare, say, for example, like if one of the other kids says, what's wrong with your mum? Why does your mum look like that? Which has never happened yet because they're still too young. But I'm the only person who can make my kids okay with that. Mm. And it's how I deal with it and it's how I treat people. And it's how I deal with my injury that is going to teach them how to be, how to do, how to act, how to support, how to care, what to say if anyone ever says that to them. That all has Mm. to come from me. That's a lot of precious air. I know. But, you know, this is the card that I got dealt. And if I can if I can do it and if I could start with them, then maybe it will flow on to other people as well. Mm. Sometimes we need that if motivation's the right word, but that kind of inspiration, motivation to be like, I can do this, I can and, and for the children is such a beautiful one, you know. It's like I can do this f- and show them that it's gonna be okay. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it's better, like, I don't know, this might be weird, but it's better that they get to learn this lesson that it happened to me rather than, you know, say if I was my my mother having having to watch it happen to my child. Mm. And I've never actually talked mm. to her about it, what it feels like to be in her shoes, but. Is this the first time you've thought that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because if it was one of your children, how, you know, thinking about. Oh, even if what my child had like. an accident, they lost their leg. And I had, you know, so I don't know why I'm so fixated on the face as well, because I feel like um, even if I look at somebody who might have had other physical injuries to their body, I, I somehow feel like. And I feel guilty saying it out loud, but if I if I see someone else who's had an extremely physical injury to their body, I think they've still got such a beautiful face and their eyes are still so beautiful. It's something mm. to do with eyes. 
But, you know, I do just have to remind myself all the time that I didn't meet my husband until after this injury. And it's not a problem for him and it's not a problem for his family and it's not a problem for my friends and it's not a problem for my family and my brothers and sisters and my parents and my aunties and uncles. And when you put them all together, that's a lot of people. Mm. But it sometimes feels like it's a huge problem for you, you know. You can you can see that for them that they still love you and that it doesn't change how they feel about you. But for you, there's still a massive fear sitting there. Like what is that? From where you are now, what are you most afraid of? Um I don't really I don't really know. I'm afraid of being unsuccessful, I think. Mm-hmm. Um What does success mean to you? Yeah, well I'm thrashing this out in my mind as we're talking, but <laughs> it's amazing once we put a comment out there and then we think, oh, what now does I've got that to back actually that mean? Up. <laughs> yeah, now you've got to back it up, girl. Back it up. What does success mean to you? Oh, success to me. I think I think it's almost like success is uh, the beauty and the attractiveness comes hand in hand with success. But when I say those words, that's not what I that's not what I think. I mean, my version of success is having a, you know, a loving family and being able to spend time with them and having the freedom to spend time with them. And freedom comes from having both time and money. So being successful, making enough money, giving yourself enough time to have the freedom to be present with your family. But there's still that other part that comes up for you around the looks. Yeah, definitely. And when you say it out loud, you said it doesn't – when you say it out loud, it's almost like you say it and then it's like, is that really what I think? Yeah, it's it's weird because as soon as I say it out loud, I think, God, where does this come from? Because it's just – Where does it come from? I don't know where it comes from, but it's deep in there. It's deeply ingrained Mm. in there, obviously, isn't it? What would you say if it was your daughter? Oh. It's hard for me to put it into words because when I say it, I've, I think it from my own personal perspective and, you know, it's going to it's gonna be okay, like everything will be all right. It just, just doesn't cut it for me. Mm. But What will cut it? I think I've got to feel it. Mm-hmm. So if you have your hand on your heart and you said that out loud and feel it, does it, will it be enough or do you need other words there? I think that I need to stop. I think that somewhere within me, I need to stop feeling like I need to get my validation externally. I think I need to get my validation internally. I think you need the adult part of yourself, the old Sarah, to look after that little wounded little Sarah. You know, (laughs) like I think you need the loving mum and the beautiful wife holding the hand of the little girl that's like, will someone still love me? Will they still buy from me? Will they still like me even if my face looks different to what it did or what I thought it was going to be? And putting that nurturing support around that really vulnerable part of yourself. Yeah. And, you know, like I don't really – I don't know how to do that. No. And that's where I think, say, might be the next stage of your journey is to have a chat to – I'd be happy to chat to you or chat to a counsellor or a therapist and and do some what we call inner child work, which is where you really go back and look at how can my nurturing part 
look after my wounded part because deep, deep down in our core there is that vulnerable, scared little girl that just wants to be loved and we need an adult that can take care of that when it vibrates and vibrates strong. And it sounds like for many, many years, a decade, you have been able to soldier on, mm. you know, like you can get shit done like no man I've ever seen. So, you know, that's you being able to like tuck that away and not hold on to it and not bring it up. But when we when we get close to it, when we feel it, when it's in the room, it's it's still really big yeah and I think potentially when you're saying that you're looking at your mindset and the story I think it's it's also looking at how do we nurture that part in us that's still vulnerable and scared Mm. and it's okay to have that vulnerability and that fear definitely and I don't you know there's a couple of things in that first is that I don't come from a particularly emotional family and emotions were not it's not that they're not welcomed or whatever but there was a lot of what are you crying about? We need, you know, we need to get on that sort of thing. So being overly emo, like this, you know, this has been a hugely emotional journey, but the emotional side of things or, you know, how are you going and how are you coping with this is not something that's really ever been discussed externally. And it doesn't need to be, I need to be the one that, that handles it. But I think we all, though, say, and this is not a criticism of your parents or family at all, you know. I I say this to everyone and I need to say it to myself more as a mum and any mum that's listening, please listen to this, is that we do the best we can with the information we have at the time. Yeah. And we, our kids will grow up and they will reflect on their childhood and they will say, this is what happened and this is how it's impacted me today, regardless of how we parent. Mm. There has to be some form of reaction to stories that we had, experiences we had. And, you know, it's not saying that what our parents did is right or wrong. It's saying that this is what I experienced and now this is what I noticed. So for you, Sarah, you're saying that, you know, as a child, it wasn't, we didn't like unpack all the emotion. Had you unpacked all the emotion, we'd be having a different conversation now. You'd be saying to me, I don't know how to like, I don't know what to do with all these emotions. So, <laughs> That's still something. You know, I think it's it, the key in this. The key in this is self awareness and and starting to understand how we walk in the world and how that influences us and our behaviors and our thoughts and our emotions. And then the more aware of it we are, the more kind of strategies we can put in place around this. You know, you've got plenty of fantastic strategies. Like we've heard m- so many today around how you got through that time. Your your self-talk when you're driving and when you're focused is so powerful. Like you're just on the money and you. we've heard lots of little lines today, but I think the next stage of the journey is probably having a look at that, um, how to look after that little child part in you that need, needs just a little bit of extra love and care. Yeah, and that's probably one of the things that I haven't done. But, you know, I've done many things in the last few years and, I mean, you've got to think with an injury like mine – I would have tried anything, you know, like anything. And I have, I've tried so many things, but one of the things that when you were saying there about we do the best with what we have at the time, I also feel like nobody, unless you're a psychopathic, you know, serial killer, nobody does anything with the intention to harm harm. most people. Mm. say your family even, they do everything from a place of love. That place of love might not be what you would do, 
but you know, I could look at something that maybe like my dad has done or my mum has done and I might interpret it a certain way. But from if I put myself into their shoes and think, why did they do that? Well, they were doing that because that was the best way that they could possibly keep me safe mm-hmm. or that was, you know. So, like I always, you know, if somebody has done something that annoys me or bothers me or I always try and think of how they might be thinking about it because most of the time they're doing it from a place of love and you're just not Mm. seeing it through their eyes. Yep, absolutely. And that's what I say to the girls all the time. What is your intention? Like if your intention is good, you're not always going to get it right. You can't get it right. Everyone walks in this world differently and we all have different needs. We all have different wants. We all have different life experiences. So you can't get it right no matter how you do it. But it's like what's the intention? Is your intention pure? Is it good? Is it there to be for others? You know, what? what is that intention? Yeah. Sarah, if you were to, if you were to think, and this is a big question. I mean, I've, we've had a few of them today, <laughs> so <laughs> this is another biggie. When you think about everything you've been through to date, what have you gained from this experience? Well, it's really hard for me to say, but I, I wouldn't change it. I couldn't change it because not all paths lead to here, you know, not all paths lead to mm. my husband, my children, my business, my education. All of that stuff has come off the back of it. So, whilst there are parts mm. of me that think it's the most fucked thing that's ever happened to me. It's not all bad. Do you know what I thought of then when you were saying it? And I don't know if this will resonate, but as you were describing that, I'm thinking about a seed underground and it being dark and cold, but from that seed grows this tree. You know, this a beautiful tree that grows with luscious green leaves in the sun. And some of the things that have happened in your world are amazing. It doesn't take away mm. the shit. It doesn't take away the pain and it doesn't take away that would you wish this upon your worst enemy? Absolutely no. not. But there has been like listening to you and knowing how where you're at right now, some of these experiences and owning the business and doing your podcast and the, the, what drives you, your why has come from part of this journey with your eye. And I've thought about it before and it's also, you know, it's just, sometimes I think is it worth talk, you know, is it worth thinking about but – the person who I was before I had the injury, I was still the same person. I still had the same values, but would that person have ended up here? And I, I just, I don't know the answer to it and I can never know the answer to it. And that's why I wonder whether it's even worth thinking about, but you know, yeah, I just, it's, it's not, it's not all been bad. Hmm. What would you say the best thing from it has been? If you were to pick one thing, what's the best thing? Um, I'm a better mother to my children. What a thing to take (laughs) away from it. Yeah. And when you say you're a better mum, are there things about being a mum that you think about? Well, I'm pretty aware of, you know, how I act and behave and their little feelings and just taking the time to explain things to them. And I don't think that I would have that that patience or that, and I mean, I have shit days, don't get me wrong, I have days more often than not where I go to bed and I feel upset about have I done enough for, you know, I got rassed on them today and, you know, all of those sorts of things. I have many, many shit days where I think I haven't done enough, but 
yeah, I think my level of patience and the time that I take to explain things to them and how I treat them like their understanding of things and what they might want to do, I think that that is all better because of the experiences that I've had. Mm. And I think that reflection piece is really important when you've been through something so traumatic. I think we can't change what you've been through. We can't change that as much as I wish we could go back and I want to jump through this you know, microphone and give you the biggest <laughs> cuddle in the world right now. I do think that reflection piece of, well, what have I grown out of this? What What little plant has come out of this seed that's been underground in the dark? What has come up and what does each of those leaves or what do the flowers mean? Like what are all the wonderful things that have come out of it? And like you said, it doesn't mean you don't have shit days. You have yeah. plenty of them. We all do. But there is some there is some really beautiful moments, experiences, changes to who we are because of what we've been through. And so if you were thinking about for the people that are listening, I know we touched on at the beginning around all those medical tests and that's something I just want to come back to. If someone out there right now is going through test after test after test with no answers, they know to their core something is wrong, but the doctors are just, they can't find it right now. What advice would you have for them? Oh, gosh. Nothing like some big questions. Yeah, that is a big question. You've just got to trust your gut because if you know that there's something wrong, then you need to find the person who can help you. And even though like I stopped my medical treatment, it wasn't treatment, I was only being tested at a point in time, I did that because I needed to maintain a quality of life and I had had, you know, at that stage, I had a, a like literally a stack, like a stack of phone books of brain scans in my cupboard. I'd had a lumbar puncture where they'd taken out my spinal cord fluid. I'd had a nerve conduction study. I'd had steroid therapy where I was on steroids and then I had to be weaned off steroids because that was like a – they were testing me to see whether I had – this thing called myasthenia gravis, which is, you know, where the whole side mm. of your face droops. And not immune. But they tested me for it and the test had come back negative or whatever it was that they'd done. But they just thought, okay, well, we're going to put you on the steroid therapy anyway and see if what you have a response is. to it because maybe the test is not showing up correctly. So what would you say to someone, Sarah? Because that, like – that's a lot, right? That's so much to put someone through. And if we just go back to remember that this is even before you had your partner today, before kids, this is as a young 28, were you 28, 29-year-old, what would you say to someone going through it? It's fucked, but you will. You either will die <laughs> because you'll get so unhappy and you'll fucking hate everything and you'll feel like shit or – you find something in yourself that you want to live for and you want to be happy and you want to achieve and you focus on that. And you mm -hmm. go get it. Because you can sit here and you can feel sorry for yourself and there's nothing that anyone can say. They'll say, oh, I feel sorry for you. It's terrible. I'm so sorry this is happening. It doesn't change anything. It doesn't make anything any better. It doesn't make mm -hmm. anything any worse. The validation is not going to come from someone else outside of yourself, you need to find something positive to focus on and you need to do that. Mm. 
And you need to follow through with the language and the statements, you know, those little mantras that are like, I've got this or this is what I'm doing. Find your why. Find something that makes you happy, something that can bring you joy. Mm-hmm. And put your time and energy into that. Yep. So that's um one of that's a pretty powerful story. I just you know need to take a big breath in to even be able to take it all in. Uh, and I just want to acknowledge the space of you coming on here and and talking about that so close to your heart and being so honest and so vulnerable in the moment. I think I think I take my hat off to you. Thank you. Before we finish, I want you to think about something in your life that makes you belly laugh. Like, I mean really belly laugh. Like, you know, on the ground, laughing, laughing, laughing. What is that in your world? Well, my husband can be like that. He can he can bring that out <laughs> in me. I love it when the kids laugh. I love it when the kids really, really get a giggle up. But uh, also want it. It's contagious, <laughs> isn't it? When you hear someone laugh and they're really laughing with all the joy in the world, mm. you can't not smile, don't you reckon? Even if it's a stranger sitting across from you at the pub or in a cafe and they're really laughing, uh, notice next time there's, the, you know, you'll get your little corners of your mouth starting to smile. It just, just that beautiful sound of someone really barely laughing. Yeah, my husband can bring it out, but I tell you when the kids, when they get that real like, giggle up and they can't stop. I love it. But also one of my sisters is really funny when she wants to be. <laughs> and I do I do have quite a few around me because one of my very, very good friends is also totally hilarious. And my sister, my friend Drew and I, we used to have conference calls. We haven't done it for a while. So, I think I'm going to reinstate the conference call, but we would have word of the week and then we would have to try and uh, weave the word of the week into the into a sentence and that was very <laughs> very entertaining time <laughs> so what's next for you in a summary what is next on the cards for you in 2022 well this year i am continuing with west of the waves i'm continuing with the podcast i'm continuing with my courses Um, So I do e-commerce courses with small groups of small business owners to just really like share all my tips and tricks instead of having them have to learn them over five years, give them a bit of a shortcut so that they can really put that stuff into their business now. But I'm also writing a book. Wow. (laughs) Can we do a podcast again when you get near that? I think we can. Yeah, definitely. I don't want the book to be... um, you know, like a biographical, this is what happened. I want the book to sort of be along the lines of, you know, inspiring and motivational and a call to action for people so that instead of having to wait for that moment where you find yourself in the hospital or something bad goes wrong, like take mine, take my shit time and use it as the motivation and the inspiration to get you to be doing those things for yourself now. Wow, what a relatable, intelligent, and awesome human. I've actually done her course, which empowers business owners to nail their tech website and online presence, even if you have no confidence. It is a brilliant course. So if you want to follow Sarah, find her links in the show notes. And if you're wanting to follow us and get the latest scoop, join our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us. Thanks for joining and we will see you next week.
Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode. 